And I want to continue with what we've been talking about for seems like months on end now, which is the idea of what we're living for. You know, the scripture is really clear that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's, that's a point that we really can't argue against. It's not only the clear and, and expressed truth of God through scripture, it's also common sense and shared experiential knowledge. Just is. If you look and see what you choose to spend your money on, you can tell us all without opening a word what you value. It's what we do. We spend our money on the things we value or the things we need because we value them. And God is very clear that this is just one expression of the divine truth the absolutely objective truth that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so the scriptures then just go from beginning to end with massive effort to instruct us on what is truly valuable and where our heart should be and what true treasure is. And last time I shared, I read like 30 scriptures from Proverbs talking about how the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and discernment was greater than gold and silver and rubies and treasure, and that a wise person would seek them, right? Would pursue them. That Proverbs personifies wisdom as a woman that has been with God from the beginning, right? Describes herself as one who has been there, that by her, God created the heavens. In other words, God expressed his own divine wisdom in what he did. And we can see that. And repeating this over and over and over and over again feels uh, repetitive. Because it is. But I read this scripture, Peter, in 2 Peter, Peter says this at the end of this big, long discourse about how to make sure you're in the faith and what to add to your faith, which was works and faith and love and goodness and affection and all these things, perseverance. He says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and maybe even are established in the truth you now have. He says, I think it's right, as long as I'm alive, to wake you up with a reminder says, I will not be here for always. I will eventually lay this tent aside, meaning I will die and be with Jesus. And I will also make every effort while I'm here so that you are able to recall these things after I'm gone. See, his, his method, his intention, his desire was to make sure that he repeated these things over and over and over again so that when he was gone, it would, it would be the things that they would not forget, that they would be rooted and established in these things. And this is the essence and the call of anyone who's called in the church to preach or teach or to lead, is to not come up with new uh, awesome revelations and wild truths you've not heard, but to repeat over and over and over the everlasting gospel and truth of scripture that's been passed down to us from generation to generation to generation. It's one gospel, one truth that's been given to all. And that's our job. And what we do, hopefully being led by the Spirit through prayer and, and God's instruction is this, recognize what God is doing in our body and where the people are really needing to hear or be reminded of a truth that may have been forgotten or is not being remembered in the execution of this mission we're living in. And so I wanted to revisit a treasure map to again point us to where the treasure is. I mentioned last week a bunch of scriptures and towards the end I quoted this from Colossians 2. It said this, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so I want to really revisit that because last week I ended without going into this because it was just 
uh, a good time. And so I'm picking up here with this statement, that in him are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so when you realize that Scripture has made it clear that our highest pursuit should be wisdom, the wisdom of God, knowledge, and understanding as a greater treasure than anything you've ever pursued or invested in or spent your life or time or energy on. It leaves you to say, okay, so wisdom and knowledge and understanding, they're all good. And you could still be left to pursue worldly wisdom, worldly knowledge and understanding, except for the scripture always brings it to Christ and here it does it in an incredibly summed up beautiful way that makes it really clear that in Christ, all the riches of this knowledge that the scripture wants you pursuing hard, and all the knowledge and treasure and riches of the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that God wants you pursuing hard, is what leads you to knowing Christ. Now, you see, I've heard a few comments this week and the week before in conversation and in different places about how, man, and there's always, this truth in everything we say, it's what it feels like, but context matters. The context in which it's being said is what gives what you're saying its value. And people tend to, you know, I'm not even going to try to say it sensitively, I'm just going to say it. We are in the charismatic world, and as charismatics, we tend to just understand things through our most recent experience and feelings. And then we read the scriptures that way, and we read them God-awfully wrong. And then we build whole theologies and understandings on it, and then we live that way. Now, everyone does that, but especially because we are more open to the experiential reality of what God's doing than some other streams. We can tend to go too heavy on that end and miss the actual foundation that enables the power and the experience. And in this, we tend to then pit intimacy with God and knowing God against the actual pursuit of the knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God. And we tend to put that stuff in the almost works-based category, the religious stuff where we think, oh, we're going to earn our intimacy with Christ, and then we think hiding in a closet and weeping until we can't cry anymore, calling out to Jesus is what produces intimacy. And this is where the, the challenge hits, the rubber meets the road. Show me in scripture. That's what should always be our cry, our always the, the authoritative stance. Show this to me. I can't remember where I mentioned it because I share like five times a week, but somewhere during this last week we were talking about the gospel proclamation, the kerygma, the heart of the New Testament, the gospel being proclaimed. And we were talking about evangelism and what that looks like in the New Testament and sharing about how I can't find anywhere in the scriptures where the apostles went and proclaimed the gospel by saying, Jesus loves you. I'm going to give you guys just a chance to process that, right? Let it sink in for a second. Search in your mind. Wait, wait, I know it's in there. I know it's in there. Pick out your phone, start Googling, whatever you need to do. Find somewhere where the apostles in the New Testament bringing the gospel somewhere proclaimed, Jesus loves you. I'll give you a quick, quick cheat, cheat sheet real quick. Your mind, if you've been in the church for any, any length of time, will go to John 3, where Jesus is in a private conversation with a Jewish teacher of the law and rabbi and explaining to him that because God so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever would believe on him 
would have everlasting life. Because Jesus didn't get sent into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. And it goes on to explain, he didn't bring condemnation. The world was condemned already because they did not believe in the Son of God. And then he goes on, and this is the condemnation that the world is under. That they loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But that all those who will come into the light love the truth because their deeds will be exposed in the light and can be seen for what they are. And those who love the truth are willing to have their deeds exposed in the light and to be washed away because they love the truth more than their own deeds. Even John 3, which starts by saying, hey, God's motive for sending Jesus into the world was because he loved the world, guys. Even that whole passage is not saying, Jesus loves you, you should get saved. It's the love of God that motivates Jesus coming. We know that. You can't argue that. That's throughout Scripture. We literally have first love to love come consistently here, guys, to establish you guys in the fact that God does love you. Right? So the point is, this is not pitting against it, but the primary decree and call of Jesus and the, his apostles to the lost and dying world was this, that the good news is that Jesus is Lord. The good news, the proclamation of the gospel has always been, Jesus is Lord, and you crucified him. So repent of that and believe. Part of the good news is that this Lord, who has every right to be a wicked, brutal, abusive taskmaster, just like every other Lord they've known, and the Roman emperors they were under, the good news is that this Lord is not like them. That this Lord came and washed feet. That this Lord came and became the servant of all. And that this Lord is willing to forgive your rebellion even now while you stand in open rebellion. That's the good news. The good news did not pierce hearts and bring them to a place of conviction and expose them to the fact that they were in rebellion to the Lord and in need of a Savior by going out and saying, hey, listen, Jesus loves you. He really does. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love you. I think it's clear. He does. And his love is a motivating factor. And I want to be careful how I say this. Because the love of God in Scripture is expressed by declaring the truth that will save you. He does not save you by coming down and expressing his love through hugs and kisses and long walks on the ocean while holding hands and whispering sweet nothings into your ear. He will affirm you and assure you in his love, but his love is always an expression of the truth that we need to now walk in. Where are those who condemn you? Are there none that condemn you? Here's good news and my love expressed to you. I don't condemn you either. Now stop sinning. It's so crazy how somehow we have missed that because we want people to experience the love of God. But we go about it trying to get them to experience the affection of God first instead of the love. And it's this love, this confusion over this expression, even in the church, that keeps the church impotent in this endless cycle of pursuing the hugs and kisses and affections of Jesus before they make him their Lord. 
And Jesus is saying, those things I have for you. But they are not going to be given to you in exchange for you feeling the desperate need of the truth that I brought to save you. And I want to go into this a little bit more here because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so the pursuit of intimacy with God looks like that. It looks like pursuing those treasures. The treasures of, the, of wisdom is to know God. The treasures of the knowledge that we're to be pursuing here is to know God. The treasures of understanding the mystery of who Christ is is the end result of knowing God. And this word knowing that we're referencing is epinosis. It is intimacy, experiential knowledge. And it cannot be separated from the two. You will not find intimacy with Christ apart from this. You can't. You will find false comfort and false intimacy with the false Jesus because the Jesus you're trying to find that in is one of your own making because you haven't pursued the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and the understanding of God. That's the pursuit that we are in. God, through the prophet Hosea, warned his chosen people and said this, my people, my chosen people, Israel, are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And he wasn't talking about a lack of history or mathematics. My people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge. Listen to God's response. I have rejected them from being a priest to me. That's significant because being a priest to God was, was the representation of being in his presence, of having intimacy. And he's saying because they lack knowledge, they're being destroyed and I've rejected them from their ability to be a priest to me, to come and serve in my presence. And since they have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. This is what he said through Hosea to them. And we're like, sheesh, that's strong, that's harsh. And I'm just saying it's there, guys. It's so easy to dismiss that, but we need to find the treasures of Christ that are hidden in that prophecy. The treasures of the hidden wisdom and knowledge here is that God puts a premium emphasis on knowledge. And the knowledge here, if you read the whole book of Hosea, is the knowledge of him. He said, I came to be your God and for you to be my people, but there is a complete lack of knowing me in the land. His judgment was on them because they, no one in the land knew him. The knowledge of God was absent in the land. And so pursuing intimacy with Jesus looks like this. It looks like pursuing wisdom. It looks like pursuing knowledge. It looks like pursuing understanding, but not the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the world. The kind of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that flips things upside down. That looks like foolishness to the world. It looks like foolishness. It's so foolish looking that it literally becomes a stumbling block to those who pursue knowledge and wisdom because it looks so foolish. That we would, we would trust our security and our provision in an invisible being that we can't see or prove through the scientific method. That we give even when we don't have it because we trust God is never going to run out of funds or sources to provide for us. It's foolishness to the world. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And this is what this wisdom and this pursuit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding looks like. You understand? Jesus is saying, the, you love me, Great, that's going to look like something. 
And that's going to look like you pursuing the wisdom I'm sharing and the knowledge and my teachings and trusting me to follow them and obey them. And so it looks like this. And if you remember last week, I, I started, started quoting James and ran out of time. And this was the main point that I'm bringing it to here in James. Do you know in James, he writes to the church and he's essentially screaming this. He's like, guys, the pendulum has swung too far the wrong way. You misunderstood what Paul has been teaching. And we've done this in church history too. How many of you guys are familiar, at least even a little bit, in the Protestant Reformation? The Reformation of the church where a couple guys stood up and they said, we can't take it anymore. The teachings of the Catholic church have gone so far off and so astray that the gospel is absent from any and all of its teachings. Because the Catholic church, which had been the church up until the Reformation for the 1500 years the church existed, had become so focused on works and then corruption was mixed into there so that works became a source of, of sucking funds from people and, and abusing them and claiming power. That the Protestant Reformation said, stop it. And they started all these statements that the church has kind of grabbed hold of since then. By grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, the scriptures alone. Right? It, it was this theme of all these uh, solas, they're called, right? Because they love to speak Latin. Okay? But for us, it just means alone. Like, this and nothing else needed. This alone. And so the Protestant Reformation ripped the gospel back out of that desert and put it back at the center. And from that came this, this whole thread of teaching that is woven throughout the church and gone up and down. We refer to it as Reformed theology today. Okay? And it's got a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses, like a lot of things. But Reformed theology means my theology is based on the teachings that come from the Reformation time period. That's what it means to say Reformed theology. And a lot of people, not all of them, but there's a lot of people that have taken that whole, hey, the church emphasized works for so long that it's wrong and we got to come out of no works. They literally describe faith as a work at this point because there's such a strong emphasis on making sure there's no works involved at all in the salvation, which I would argue till the cows come home that that is a misunderstanding of Paul's emphasis of him preaching against the Jewish works required to become a people of God. But that's for a whole nother message in private conversations. Hit me up. I'll love to have it with you. I love Luther, except for the fact that he wanted to kill all the Jews and thought they couldn't be saved. But who's perfect? Anybody? All that is to say this, that James comes along and he says, guys, wait, you've kind of missed something. Can you be saved apart from works? Yes. See, right there. Those are the expressions I want to say. The buttons are being hit right now. Let's look at what James says, because this was his point. He said this, starts off by saying, consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Why should you have joy in that time? Because you're knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. That's what James says, and we often stop there. If anyone wants wisdom, finds yourself lacking wisdom, ask God, and he will generously give it to you without judging you about it. He's not going to say, well, why don't you have wisdom? He's just going to give it to you generously without criticizing and it will be given to him. But, there's that infamous biblical but. Let him ask in faith without doubting. 
James is saying, let there be an action tied to this request for wisdom. Let him believe that God will do it and in faith execute that. Now, right now, you're still not getting it because in the West, we still think of faith largely in part, in my opinion, because of the pendulum swing of the the Reformation teachings, that faith is not an action. We think we can have faith without any works. And so we read this and say, oh, well, that just means as long as I believe without doubting it, I'll get wisdom. That's not what James says in the whole rest of his letter. When James says this, he means this. Well, let them ask without doubting in faith, meaning that you're going to take action to gain this wisdom that God is going to give to you. You're not going to sit in a room and light some candles and put your hands up and just cry until you have wisdom. No matter how hard you believe, feel free to test it. Try that for a year. And then come back. We'll see if you've gained this immense amount of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And you do that And I'll compare that to someone who prayed and asked for wisdom and then in faith dug into the scriptures, sought out teachers, lived through hard experiences and trusted God in them and we'll see who has gained the wisdom that God had promised. That's James' whole argument. He goes on to say this in chapter 1, verse 21 to 22. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth an evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. Wow. Humbly receive, after you've rid yourself of everything, the implanted word. It's right here. Which is able to save you. And his very next line starts with that biblical but again. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, which would cause you to deceive yourself. What? Wait, you're telling me this this implanted word alone inside of me can't just save me? That if I'm not a doer of the word and I'm just a hearer only, I'm actually deceiving myself in thinking that that will happen? Yeah, no, I'm not telling you that. James is. In in verse 25, that same thing, he elaborates, he goes, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in what he does. The person who acts is the one who's blessed in what he does. And you're like, all right, cool, but you're stretching that a little bit, Steve. All right, fine. We'll go right to the meat of it that most of you guys know in verse 14, where he starts by saying this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Before he even explains what he's saying, think about that. James a Holy Spirit-inspired author of the eternal Word of God is saying, what good is it for you to say you have faith but no works? James is saying, I can't find any good. I can't find anything positive in someone telling me they have faith but don't have works. Now, salvation is a good thing, right? So if he can't find anything good in you saying you have faith but no works, maybe we have a Western understanding of salvation after all. He says this, can his faith save him? Oh gosh. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? Can a faith apart from works save him? That's the question he's asking. If a brother or sister is without clothes, here's some examples he gives to elaborate on his point so that we can grasp what he's saying. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, 
Go in peace, keep warm and eat well. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Faith without works is a dead thing. How many people think a dead thing can save you? If you were hanging on a cliff and crying out for help, would you find any console in your heart that there was a dead body at the top of the cliff? Ah, but someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. James responds by saying, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. Do you hear what he's saying? I will show you faith from my works. You don't need me to tell you I have faith. My works will be the demonstration of what I have faith in. My lifestyle, my emphasis, my value, where my treasure is, what I spend my life on, what I train and gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding to be equipped to do for will tell you what my faith is in. This was my point about last week when I said, hey, you can look in the church and one out of every four people will have some degree that they spent lots and lots of money on. I mean lots, guys. Six digits a lot of times. In debt to gain knowledge and training and equipping in something like science, math, arts, engineering. And one in 50 will have a degree, maybe I'm being generous, in the Word, in the Scriptures. And I exemplified this by saying when, when the, the country was first founded and it was rooted, Harvard was a seminary. Yale was a seminary. They existed to train people at the highest levels of understanding of the Word and the knowledge and understanding of God. And to repeat, this isn't to condemn you if you don't have a degree in the Word of God yet. We offer them. But it's more so to show you the state of the church over the last multiple generations and where the value and the treasures of the church lie right now. Do you need a degree to dig into the scriptures? Nope. But the degree tells us where our treasure is if we have a degree in other things and not this. If, again, let me qualify because I know what's going to happen to my phone in two hours. If God has called you to a field, an industry as part of your mission, and it requires training and equipping and studying and knowledge, awesome, get it. But that also still reveals your heart, that your heart's treasure is in obeying and following Christ on mission. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that our actions speak to our value. And no one here can judge you, God is your judge. But you can look at your own heart and say, where does my treasure lie? Where has my life screamed to onlookers my value lies? That's all I'm saying. So he goes on to say this. You believe that God is one? You do well. You know who else believes that? The demons. And they tremble. In other words, James is emphasizing even the demons manifest their faith with works. They tremble. They believe that God is who he says he is, and their resulting response is terror. They tremble at the knowledge that God is who he says he is. So foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with works, and by works... Faith was perfected, so the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. I don't know how clearer the scripture could get to tell you that there's no such thing as a worksless faith. There's no such thing as a faith that just requires mental belief. It doesn't exist.
You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And I thought that was an interesting way for him to end his, his section here. Look what he equates the two to. Body and spirit. Which one would you guys say is more important out of the two? Out loud. Seems unanimous. So the body is just this vessel that the spirit drives, right? Spirit leads. And he says this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also is faith, the body, without works equated to the spirit. Seems to flip our Western kind of understanding on its head. That faith is the body that works wears. That it's works that drives the ship. Because the works are the result of what you have faith in. If you truly have faith in God as your provider, then your works will express that. If you truly have faith that God is the captain of the ship you're riding on, then your works will express that. You guys know that Paul, Paul suffered the things he suffered, massive things, because of his faith. Do you understand that? Do you know the things he suffered? He was shipwrecked, he was tortured, he was whipped, he was beat, he endured hardships, he was naked, starving, almost died multiple times because he truly, truly believed that what he was spending his life on was going to produce the fruit it intended to. He believed that. And so when you're going to act that way, your life will demonstrate it. It can't be hidden. You cannot... It's useless to pretend. It's useless to pretend. You know, when I got here, I looked out and I said, man, I was really encouraged because I was like, this place is growing. God is doing something here. He is drawing people to this place. And it is not because we have amazing facilities or amazing teachers or... (laughs) Right? Like... We don't have super, superstars. Like the guy who's been up here preaching for the last two months just has an awful lisp that stands out whenever I re-listen to it in every message. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is there some surgery that can fix that? <laughs> I've tried. I've done the speech therapy, chew up crackers, speak to a straw. Nothing doesn't work. In other words, the Lord is just using just flawed people everywhere, yet he's still bringing people here. And people are getting offended every week. But this is how I know God's doing something. They're not leaving. And that's the grace of God, holding people in place to allow the work to be done. Do you understand that he's, his grace is being expressed and it's this, this type of reality, guys, that we're realizing that we can't just sit in our chairs, listen to podcasts, watch our stuff, and then live our own life and think that that faith is going to be approved. Because it's not. It is time to realign our lives with what God is doing right now, in this hour. God has given us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists for a reason. And the prophets are speaking. Prophets are speaking, the apostles are leading, the teachers are teaching, the evangelists are crying out, and the pastors are trying to align people to this thing that God is doing now. And it would be super wise, it would be a high demonstration of our pursuit of the wisdom of God and the knowledge that He's making available to us to listen and to go to God with it and say, God, My flesh is screaming and my soul is clearly broken 
in how I'm responding to the leadership of your spirit and the people you've placed here. God, heal me, but this is, this is, this is my bold take. Do not go sit in a room and cry while you're asking God to heal you. Let your faith-filled request to God to heal you be partnered with action. Start living as if the healing is in process. Start living as if while you're on mission, the healing will be fulfilled. Act as if you have substance for the very thing you're hoping for. Do you understand? Your healing is done. It will take place. He promises it. But it is going to happen as you lay your life down, as you give it for the mission. There's a story in John 7 that sums it up perfect. This woman who was a mess. Many think she was a prostitute, possibly a demon-possessed one beforehand. There's no clarity in that. But what we do know is she was a sinful woman of the streets. And Jesus was invited to speak at the Pharisees' banquet place that they made for him, but they insulted him at their bringing. You know why? Because they didn't believe he was it. They were looking for ways to expose him as the fraud. And so he walked in with dirty feet and they just let him go. They didn't wash his feet or offer him anything to cleanse his hands, nothing. And that was tradition, hospitality in their culture. So he sits down and he's sitting there. And while he's at a banquet, this woman who's a mess She's a mess, guys. If she walked into this church, half of you guys would be afraid to talk to her. She's a mess. Dirty. Sinful. Maybe a little off her, her rocker. But she had encountered the truth of Jesus at some point. And she heard he was in there. And she came in. And her plan was to offer him the gift of everything she had. She had this super expensive alabaster jar of sweet perfume that was super, it would have taken everything she had to buy. And in response to what Christ gave her, she responded because she believed he was who he is in faithful works and went and took everything she said and said, this is well worth it. But her plan was to give it to him. And when she got there and saw that his feet were still dirty, that they hadn't been washed yet, she fell down behind him at his feet because, listen guys, in Jewish, they, they reclined on their sides. They didn't have chairs and big tables like we do. They had a platform here and they sat down and leaned over and their feet were behind him. And she saw his feet were dirty and she wept over it. It provoked tears that this man Feet were still dirty at dinner. And she began to weep and washed his feet off. We're talking about animal poop and dust from the roads where he traveled. Washed his feet off with her tears and her hair. And then offered that alabaster box. And Jesus heard the thoughts of the people around him, those who were religious and, you know, were interested in what Jesus had to say, but they didn't believe he was really the Messiah. Their acts proved it. <clears throat> and he hears their thoughts and they're like, oh, if he knew what kind of despicable, sinful woman that was, he wouldn't be letting her touch him. And Jesus, who discerned their thoughts, says, let me ask you something. There are two people who owed a debt. One owed a great debt and one owed a small debt and the person forgive them both. Who do you think loved the person more? And the guy figured it out. It wasn't hard. Well, I suppose the one who was forgiven much. He says, you've answered correctly. This woman right here that's weeping over me and touching me, she has been forgiven much. And so she loves much. And what he says to her at the end is this. She says this. This is what he said. Your faith has saved you. Stop for a second, because this is the final point. This is what I want us to respond to. This wretched woman, her entire life story is nothing but sin and debauchery and disaster and mess. 
Most of us would not invite this person into our home. Oh, we have little children. We don't, our carpets are too clean. Like, whatever. We wouldn't. If we're just being straight honest. And this woman shows up. She's had one encounter with Christ. Shows up here. Acts this way. Does what she does. And Christ turns around and says, Your faith has saved you. She didn't say a word. She did not open her mouth. How could he possibly know that she has saving faith? How could he know? She never said, yes, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe in my heart that I shall be saved. Please forgive me for all my sins. I choose to make you my Lord. Amen. She didn't say that. She didn't say a thing. Her works demonstrated that she believed he was the Messiah. And he responded by saying, your faith has saved you. We're so wrapped up. We're afraid to pray in public because we don't know if we're going to say the right things. We don't know if our prayer is going to be good enough for the onlookers and the spectators. We might look silly or foolish or that might be too embarrassing. We don't speak up to someone who clearly needs the Lord when we feel the prompt because, oh, I don't know what to say. I might get it wrong. This woman's faith saved her forever. Her story is recorded in the eternal word of God forever. She didn't say a word. She wasn't concerned about what she looked like or what it sounded like. She just, her works were weeping in response and pouring out everything she had. She changed her life on a dime, took everything she had to live on and went and bought it as a gift to give the man who had given her something that was more valuable than anything she had. So the challenge is this, guys. It's apply this to your life right now and say, as you live in this day, in this time, in this moment, what does your life look like in comparison? Could someone come to you without you saying a word and say, it's clear by your works that you love the Lord? It's clear by your works that you serve the living God with your life. It's clear by how you behave, by how you speak, by how you act, by what you invest in, that you are committed to the lordship of Christ and his victory. This is what it means to evaluate ourselves and to see if we are in the faith. This is why I challenged you last week to go to somebody you trust as a leader, as someone who is walking with the Lord, and say, will you give me your honest assessment of my life? Am I in the faith or not? When you look at my life and see my works and my deeds and my actions, can you honestly say that I have approved faith? Or do I have to argue with you and convince you that it's so? Right now, this is the response time, guys. You never, ever, ever share the gospel without a challenge. Without allowing people to respond to a truth which hopefully is piercing hearts and resonating in souls. To stand up right now and respond. We already had a response earlier today. So I'm not asking for an call. I'm asking for what you just heard and what God's been doing all morning. Can you now stand up and stand before the Lord and say, God, help me. Help me make the bold and hard decisions to change areas in my life, decisions in my life in ways that will line up with who you are and what you're doing. Giving up stuff is hard, but not as hard as standing before God and saying, I thought this was more valuable than following you. Theological conversations and debates, they're awesome and they're fun and they're really good for digging in and searching for the wisdom and knowledge of God, but only as we understand it as the means to knowing Him better. 
but it means to know him better. So let's just stand up. Let's ask God to settle this in our hearts right now. I want you to respond however you want to respond. You want to come up, come up. You want to stay there, stay there. You want to start jumping around and doing jumping jacks. I don't care. Whatever you want to do, do. As long as it's a genuine response to what the Holy Spirit is speaking and moving in your heart. Because I'll tell you what, there's some of you guys here who were born and raised in the church and you have become too content and too familiar with the presence of the living God. And you've skated by with being related and connected to people and parents and family members who are rooted and on mission. And somehow it's come through that you are okay because of that. You are not. You are more so accountable because you have been gifted with resource and family and opportunity that so many others haven't. And it's time to get off your hands and stand up and put your hands to the plow and start working for something with eternal value. Because the Lord is waiting and he's calling and he's asking for those who are ready to step up and step out and step out onto the water and watch what God will do. Once you experience the supernatural just once, there's no going back. Once you watch God step out and meet you where you're at, there's no going back. But I'll tell you what, guys, sometimes he meets you in the storm. He meets you in the storm. Do you understand? He didn't save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. He saved them from within the fire. And he didn't save Daniel from the lion's den. He saved him within the lion's den. He met them in the fire. He met him in the den. It's us who step out and trust that the living God who has promised to be with us forever, even to the ends of the age, will meet us in those places. Let's respond to God. Do heart business with God right now. Just begin to let your worship draw you to a place where you hear the Holy Spirit clearly. And you allow Him to invade what you've always believed. And I encourage you guys, if you don't know what to do, come up to someone in leadership and say, what must I do? What must I do? Yeah. Jesus, do what only you can do, God. Right now, take your word and plant your word. The living word implanted in our hearts that saves us. If we would but do it.